So good morning everyone, it's great to be with you. Thanks to Josh for leading our service this morning. I loved some of those communion prayers. Uh, uh, guy who, Roddy Hamilton, the guy who did them, has got a great way with words. And thanks to those who've been helping us think about change so far. When the uh, Italian painter Michelangelo de Caravaggio, I need to practice my Italian accent, painted his two paintings about the conversion of Paul. He painted them in the year 1600. There were, there were well-established conventions as to how you would portray that incident. Uh, you should always have a rearing, panicked horse. And Paul should be lying on the ground and Jesus appearing in the sky with a whole load of soldiers responding and reacting with various degrees of terror. And you can see some of those in this picture here. Bible actually has a number of different accounts of, of Paul's conversion. I, I counted four uh, for this week. Uh, perhaps the best known one, uh, the one we always think about, is the one in Acts chapter 9. And if you're not familiar with it, maybe give that a Google after the, after the service. And it has many of the features that we, we see in this painting, but there are no horses. Sorry for those of you who like horses, no horses. But Paul being stopped in his tracks on the way to Damascus by a blinding light and falling to the ground and hearing Jesus' voice asking him, Saul, Saul, why are you, why are you persecuting me? And of the other accounts, there are two more in Acts and one in Acts 22, actually very similar to that account. But the other in Acts 26 feels very different, much more intimate, with much less focus on all the dramatic stuff, all the dramatic goings on, uh, focusing on, if you like, Paul's dialogue with Jesus. Reminds me more of Caravaggio's other painting, uh, which, is, which is here. Uh, it's a lot more still, isn't it? Uh, Here, Paul, Paul's encounter is uh, portrayed, as, if you like, as a moment of religious ecstasy. So Paul lying on the ground, prostrate, eyes shut, legs spread, and his arms raised upward, as if embracing his vision. I don't know about you, maybe it says something about me and my personality, but actually I find this painting much more helpful as I, as I reflect on, on what happened to Paul. And I think it resonates more also with that passage that, that Ali read a few moments ago from, from Galatians chapter 1. Paul says, you've heard no doubt of my earlier life in Judaism. We heard about some of that from Rick last week. I was violently persecuting the church of God. I was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. If you like, in very summary terms, this is the first part of Paul's testimony. Tells of his zeal for the Jewish faith, for the rhythms and practices and traditions that marked out the, the Jewish community. It tells of his passion that God's people remain faithful to all that they've been taught. And it tells of his willingness to do whatever it takes to destroy the church, which I guess the Paul pre-Damascus saw as both a perversion of the Jewish faith that he loved so much and as a dangerous threat to it. So they had to be got rid of. 
And then he continues, but, but when God, who set me apart before I was born, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim the good news about him, that's about Jesus, among the Gentiles. It's interesting that Paul completely plays down all those externals that, that appeared in that first picture. He says nothing about what happened, about the flashing light. Well, how he felt about it, the focus is on God. The one who had set him apart. The one who had now revealed Jesus. The one who had called him to a ministry of proclaiming Jesus. The focus is on, is on God and what, what God has done. And there's a couple of points I want us to note as we, as we think about these words and about how Paul frames them. I guess the first is this. We might describe Paul's Damascus Road as a conversion. I've often heard it described like that. If you look at the title of our, of our sermon, conversion, but in, in speech marks. Uh, but Paul uses the word calling, not conversion. It was a calling, a summons by God to a particular ministry, a particular mission. I guess not a conversion as we would normally describe it. You see, Paul never once turns his back on his Jewish faith. He remains a faithful and a loyal Jew. And his loyalty to the one God of Israel, to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of David, is as firm after this experience as it was before. In fact, Paul's central conviction, as you read his writings is that the promises of God through the centuries and the resultant hopes and yearnings of his people were met in Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, Paul writes that all of God's promises, we might add to Israel, all of God's promises to Israel find their yes in Jesus. Perhaps the Damascus Road is more Paul's eureka moment, when suddenly everything came together, when the penny drops, and suddenly he gets it, or at least begins to get it. There was lots more thinking and meditating and reflecting to come, but at, but at that moment, when he had that mystical experience, or whatever it was, and he, came, he comes face to face with Jesus. At that moment, all his longings and all his hopes were so simultaneously fulfilled and overthrown, as Tom Wright puts it. Quite suddenly, in a, in a flash, everything that he expected was overturned and everything that he expected to come true. Israel's God had come in person, but it looked nothing like people had expected but all of a sudden for Paul, the penny dropped. God had come, not in a blaze of glory as, as he expected, going into the temple to reward the faithful Jews and to destroy all their enemies. That, that, was, that was what they were looking for. That's what they were waiting for. That was Paul's hope. But instead, what did they get? A young man. 
dying on a cross. Something that was, was totally unthinkable to Saul of Tarsus. And yet at that moment of encounter with God, he grasped the central truth that, that Jesus was God's promised one, that Jesus was the anointed one, that Jesus was the long-awaited saviour, the Lord, the true king. The one that Paul had worshipped and loved all of his life was also the one that he'd been persecuting. Talk about cognitive dissonance or discombobulation, as, as I prefer to put it. Suddenly, Paul realised that everything that he had hoped for had come true, but not at all in the way that he'd expected. So Paul's eureka moment, and maybe you've had those moments when suddenly something clicks. I remember listening to a sermon when I was a fairly new Christian, and suddenly it was as if my eyes had been opened. Suddenly, lots of things that I'd been struggling to make sense of came, came together. It was like that for Paul. Suddenly, everything came together. Suddenly, everything made, made sense. So these events were a calling, not a conversation, and we'll come, not a conversion, and we'll, we'll come back to that later. Paul remains a faithful Jew. But there's that eureka moment when suddenly he sees the world in a new way and it all makes sense. And point four, Paul frames his story within the bigger story of God's people. It's a fascinating little verse in verse 17 that I've, I guess whenever I've read this before, I've always skipped over. Uh, but actually I want to just explore it a, a little bit. Paul says that after this experience, this dramatic encounter with God, he didn't go to Jerusalem, as, as you might expect. That was where, that was the heart of the church. That was the centre of the church. But, but no, I went away at once into Arabia. And afterwards, I returned to Damascus. I don't know, but that seems a bit of a strange thing to, to say, doesn't it? To throw in. Why would you suddenly go off to Arabia? And, and why then say, well, then I returned to Damascus. Well, well, when Paul says Arabia, I think he probably means for us to hear Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, you'll remember if you, if you know your Old Testament, is the place where God had come down in fire and given Moses the law, the Torah. Mount Sinai was a place of revelation, a place of new beginnings for the Jewish people, a place where they were being formed and shaped by God, where the nature of their relationship with him was being set out for them and formalised in law and in covenant. After all the drama of Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea, Mount Sinai was really where Israel's life with God began and their vocation was, was spelled out. And of course... Mount Sinai was also the place where Elijah fled to when his ministry had gone horribly wrong. Again, some of you will know that story of him and the prophets of Baal. Uh, and in his own words, Elijah is characterised by zeal. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. 
says that in 1 Kings 19. Uh, it means he's killed the prophets of Baal, lest they lead God's people astray. Noticing any echoes with Paul? And it is at Mount Sinai where God gives him a new job to do. He is to return to Damascus and to announce new kings for Syria and for Israel and a new prophet to take his place. And it says what Paul's doing is framing his story with the story of Elijah. Both are zealous. Both go to Mount Sinai. Both receive a new vocation. And Paul, like Elijah, is told to go back to Damascus to announce that there is a new king on the throne, Jesus. And time and time again, Paul finds his life, his meaning of his life within this story. This story of God's saving activity in the world. And Paul sees Israel's story, the whole of the story we read in the Old Testament, about finding its, its purpose, if you like, its meaning in Jesus. So, so what, what are we to make of all of this? Well, I guess this story invites us, it does me certainly, to reflect on our own lives and on the way that we encounter God. Last week, Rick made a very intriguing suggestion. Uh, Rick said that maybe as Jesus watched, as Paul rather, watched Stephen being stoned, as he saw the faith and the devotion of, of the Christian community, maybe he began to hear a still, small voice at the back of his mind, telling him that maybe Simon was right, Stephen was right. Maybe there was something in this Jesus thing. But the more he heard that still, small voice, the more he resisted, the more, the more zealous he became. You see, when you hear that nagging voice calling you to faith, or inviting you to move on in your understanding, or inviting you to change, calling you to change. You can do two things. One, you can block it out, you can hunker down, you can, <coughs> excuse me, you can be, be even more, I guess you can retreat into what you know, you can retreat into what, what is familiar, you can retreat into the truths that have held you. Or alternately, you can, you can treasure the questions to, to quote Martin Joseph. You see, the truth is that if you hang around with Jesus too long, he will disrupt your world. He will challenge your priorities. He will interrupt your activities. He will unsettle you when you become too settled. And he will provoke you when you think you have all the answers. And as I read the story of Acts, as I read the writings of, of Paul, as I look at the early church at its best, it seems to be on a journey of discovery. As they continue to work through what this faith looks like, what are the implications of Christ's death and resurrection? How do we make sense of all of this and how do we live it out into the world? So embrace the questions Wrestle with them. Return again and again to scripture. Talk to your small group or even to your friendly pastor or youth worker. 
Charlie, Josh and I are always up for that kind of discussion to discern, is this really the voice of the Spirit? Treasure the questions, because I firmly believe that is the way to new understanding, to growth. At least it is in my experience. Secondly, and I guess I've hinted this already, for Paul, the Christian faith is shot through with the hopes and the rhythms and the longings and the story of Israel's scriptures and traditions. Genesis, Exodus, the prophets, the Psalms, Daniel, and so on. These were the words that Paul loved and which have shaped him and formed him. These were the lens through which he understood Jesus and what Jesus had done and what Jesus was about. So learn to love the story of God and his people. The Bible story. Allow it to get under your skin. Allow it to shape your understanding and your living the way that it, the way that it shaped Paul's. Treasure the questions. Learn to love the story, God's story, Paul's story. Your story, my story. Thirdly, remember that grace changes everything. At the heart of Paul's message is that experience of grace that he mentions in verse 15. The grace that called this one-time persecutor of the church and embraced him and held him and forgave him and entrusted him with the mission the Gentiles, which I guess is the next stage in our journey. The grace that reaches out to you and to me and embraces us and transforms us and forgives us and calls us to a new way of living and a new way of being. We might say that, that a conversion is always a calling, a calling to follow Jesus and that salvation is as much about being saved to something as being saved from something. Being saved to something rather than just being saved from something. It's interesting how Paul gives his testimony. He doesn't tell the story as a testimony of what, of what Jesus did for me. As if the important thing or the only thing was how Paul's sins were forgiven, how his needs were met. Rather, Paul tells how his encounter with Jesus turned his life upside down and made him into an instrument of God's grace in the world. And what is true of Paul is also true for us. Jesus encounters us. Jesus confronts us, maybe, Jesus meets us so that he may turn our lives upside down and transform us so that, like Paul, we may be made into God's instruments of grace in the world, that our lives may witness that there is a new king on the throne. That is our calling and that is our vocation, as it was Paul's. Thanks be to God. Amen.